Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Hey, it's Ed Fallon with you here, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. That would be the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Central Iowa's premier good food store. Gateway brings together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, later in the program, uh, we'll be hearing from uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry about the uh, scandalous uh, situation in Louisiana where the uh, governor is, is uh, suing the EPA to stop, basically stop an investigation into deaths in Cancer Alley. We'll also be talking about the uh, climate update, including revisiting the uh, conversation about uh, making ice cubes from melting Greenland glaciers. Uh-huh. And also, Kathy Burns will join me. We'll be talking about the latest USDA Ag Census and what that means. But first, I'm delighted to have in the studio with me Reverend Bob Cook, a man I've known for a long, long time, since the 80s. Um, Bob, uh, actually, Bob was among the uh, 50 crazy people who marched across the country with me back in 2014 for climate and I action. That's that true. Every day I walked. <laughs> crazy people. <laughs> crazy people, yes. But... Um, more significantly for this program, uh, Bob has spent a significant amount of time in El Salvador with, uh, with poor communities, um, doing a, an amazing amount of work to help people who are struggling to get by in that uh, country. And before we talk about some of the, uh, some of the stories from your book, uh, and Bob's book is called um, Miracles in El Salvador, before we you know, talk about some of those stories you share, what, what is it about El Salvador that Americans probably don't know because the mainstream media refuse to talk about it that the, we really need to know? The amazing amount of violence that we helped pay for during the war and um, that, that actually goes on. I know there's a lot of news about the new president, the president newly elected again. In El Salvador. Um, in El Salvador, yeah. being able to clean the streets up from gangs, and that may be true. But his method of doing that was questionable and arresting a number of innocent people in the process. Well, and, and this is not any, uh, this is, this is uh, what happened in El Salvador is no stranger to American foreign policy generally. But our government funded what we called, I mean, rightfully called death squads. Um, many of the participants in these death squads uh, were trained in the U.S., at School and, of Americas, yeah, the school, the school of Americas, and uh, and and amount and accounts for what thirty thousand deaths during the so-called civil war. And the, the, uh, there were seventy-five thousand disappeared wow. during the war, and um, a thousand a thousand massacres of small communities. Um, with more than with with dozens or maybe hundreds even killed. Yes. And, oh yeah. wow. my yes. Well, yeah. there were a thousand killed in El Mazote, one massacre in itself. Yeah. So what drew you to El Salvador in the first place? Uh, it was my, my work. I have needed to write promotional materials for a hunger offering, uh, a uh, real harvest offering it was called. And uh, half of that money went to um, a developing country. The year I went to El Salvador, half of it was going to the canton El Tabon in El Salvador. Right. I needed to learn more about developing world poverty. Believe me, I got all I needed in there. <laughs> and you write a lot about the, uh, what you learned in, in your book. But, but just a little bit more about why, how, come, how come Americans are so ignorant about this shameful chapter of U.S. foreign policy? And, uh, it's, it's political. Uh, you know, um, and so many people bought the Reagan philosophy. You got to stop the communist in uh, uh, in El Salvador and Nicaragua and all those third world countries, uh, because if you don't, it's going to come right up through Mexico and the United States. So the the funding of the uh, death squads was premised on the need to stop the spread of communism, uh, and was, that was the premise, but not the reality. Not the reality at all. The the um, the money that was made by death squads, those who participated, was horrendous. Um, and who's going to stop that political flow of blood money? And were there economic interests that were benefiting from the uh, maintenance of that particular El Salvadoran government? Particularly, yeah, many, but particularly the government of El Salvador. The president. How many presidents have been uh, are being arrested now for uh, uh, stealing money? From the people, 
Yeah. It's, it's oh. just horrendous. We, we have our own president, former presidential scandal here. Yes, yes. But, so, but, you, but you, were, you, you, tra you traveled there. Really, from, from reading the book, you really fell in love with the people and the country and uh, kept coming back until you spent uh, many years of your adult life there. I did, and, and I, I coined the phrase where north meets south. Mm -hmm. And the, the pain of that, it just ate me up. Uh, and so I couldn't leave the people. Well, the first time I went there, when I visited El Tapón for 16 days, couldn't speak the language. And um, they had a party for me the night before I left, in gratitude for my coming there. And um, I was getting ready to leave, being walked down the mountain by four, men, four women, uh, to the bus, and I couldn't leave without saying to that crowd of people that had come to say goodbye to me, I will be back. I had no idea how. <laughs> I just, my spirit told me that it was going to happen, and it did. And you did. That's and again, in the book, too. Some of the stories you share are, are, are very empowering, some are very heartbreaking, and probably uh, no, no story is more heartbreaking, at least to me, than the very unfortunate accident uh, where you, you you hit someone with your car. I mean, it wasn't your fault at all. Not at all. But the, the story itself is, uh, it, it it starts off, I think, well, the way I read it was, hey, this should not happen to Bob. He's innocent. But the resolution of the story is um, pretty fantastic. Can you tell us about it? Yes, thank you. Um, five o'clock, Valentine's Day in 2005. I was driving down the Pan American Highway, and... Uh, a woman ran right in front of my my Honda, and I hit her. Her eyes met mine as she flew through the air and broke my windshield with her body and fell to the pavement, dead. Uh, I um, it, wow. the worst worst night of my life. Yeah, that's got to be. That's got to be really hard. Um, and and, and and what what caused her to just appear in the road like that. Well, you know, pickups are a lot of people's transportation there. She was on one side of the highway, a four-lane highway, by the way. Oh, yeah. And um, the pickup was on the other side, and her sister yelled to her, hurry up, Raina, the pickup's going to leave. Mm. When your transportation miles into the countryside to, to get to your home uh, was in her heart. And, and she, she couldn't drug her four-year-old boy with her uh. in left hand. And um, fortunately, he was far enough behind her. He rammed into the car, but did not kill him. Wow. And so she just didn't see your car. <laughs> yeah. Evidently, who knows what was in her mind. But there's an interesting law in El Salvador that uh, even if it's not your fault, if you hit and kill someone, you are, you're culpable for, for, you know, for compensating the family of the, of the, uh, of the killed, right? Right. Not only that, you're under arrest. And the penalty would be, if I hadn't been so fortunate, uh, 72 hours in jail from the night it happens or the day it happens to the end of 72 hours. You go to jail. Okay. And you, you um, uh, negotiate an amount of money uh, for the death of the loved one. Now, in my case, I'm a gringo. Yeah. You see dollar signs when you see a gringo. <laughs> Right. And well, so, well, uh, although there are some of us gringos that shouldn't <laughs> cause that reaction, but I get why it is, yes. <laughs> and so when we finally got to the hospital where the body had been taken and the whole family was there behind a security fence, and my attorney came to negotiate, but I took over because he was a sort of hard guy, and I wanted them to be and to understand I was sorry. So I asked to negotiate, and we negotiated that night a $5,000 payment. Which is a lot of money in El Salvador. Yeah, and a lot of money in my pocket. Yeah, sure. And okay. the, the, the moment that I, I got to tell you is when the, uh, the family agreed on the amount, $5,000, and they, the family was behind that security fence, and I was still under arrest on the other side, and... She said, come to the fence. Vene Aki. This was the one of the family the, members? The mother, the mother of the, okay. the woman that I killed. And she put her hands on the fence. She said, put your hands on mine. And she said, we know it was not your fault. God be with you and go in peace. Mm -hmm. And there's, 
I can't tell you. It was hard enough to know I had killed a woman, to have the mother say, you're forgiven, essentially. It meant so much. And what came of the $5,000 payment from a gringo who doesn't have a lot of money? Well, probably $3,000 was used for the funeral. Oh. Uh, the other 2000 went to the, um, the mother. Hmm. She could do with it whatever she wanted. Now, um, they also wanted that $10,000 they began with so they could build a home for the orphans. So they, they started negotiating with 10000 and you guys agreed on 5000 That's right. Okay. That's right. Um, and 2000 wasn't enough to build a home for the orphans? Not at all. And so uh, I had to go to court about a week after this whole event. And the judge, um, she said, is the family satisfied with the, 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 the negotiation? And they said, yes, Your Honor. And she looked at me. She said, do you have anything to say? And I said, yes. I said, that family, uh, there were two orphans, and um, with the Presbyterian Church and other friends, I intend to raise money and build that, those two children a home mm. with running water and electricity. And, and you did, did that? We did that. Wow. Um, yeah. How long did that take? Uh, I mean, about, to raise the money about, and to build about, it? Nine months, really. That's pretty, that's pretty quick. <laughs> that's pretty quick. Yeah. And just one, one quick thing, if I could. Um, um, we arrived that day, the first day, to begin to build that house. It was moving dirt. There was a Drake University delegation led by Father Jim Lorenzo. Um, that he, he brought a delegation many times. And um, they were working. And we brought food, you know, groceries, um, lunch, meat, fruit, etc. that day to feed anybody that wanted to come. Oh, and to work on the house. Jim's idea oh, to that. Okay. Uh, no, that they would just come to eat. Oh, okay, gotcha. And so it got to be noon, and Jim said to these two children, go call the neighbors. About 60 people showed up. <laughs> but we had enough food. This is and kind of a Lowe's and Fishes story, isn't it? Grandfather... He said with a quivering lip, I want to say something. And um, he said, you know, you came here. I was so embarrassed. You're, you, you, we're so poor. But your youth played with our children, and they had such a good time doing all this. And you brought food, and you called the neighbors. And he looked at Jim, Lorenzo, Father Jim, and he said, today, Jesus has come to our house. Mm. That's how meaningful it was yeah. to that family. That's a great story, Bob. And again, your book is full of uh, great stories, uh, Miracles in El Salvador. And uh, one other that I'd like to ask you about is, is uh, toward the end of the book involving a young man named Eric, who again, you know, that, that relationship started off a bit, uh, with a bit of turmoil. <laughs> yes. Eric um, knocked on the door where I lived, and he wanted to borrow $10 one day. And it was the, the day before Day of the Dead, where people celebrate um, the life of those who have died in the cemetery. And so he was going to paint the tombstones. Uh, so he bought paint with that $10 he borrowed that he was going to pay me back the next day. And um, he disappeared. He didn't come back. <laughs> well... I looked for him and looked for him, not to be vengeful, but I finally found him round in a corner one day. He couldn't get away, and he was so <laughs> apologetic. And so we made a deal that he would come to my house and shine my shoes every Tuesday for 50 cents. <laughs> and he did that. And as he did that, I got a sense that I need to know this lad. And uh, so I inquired, and his father was killed in the war. His mother ran off, lived with his grandmother up the, up the mountain. And so he came every day. And there's a delegation from the University of Iowa led by Marsha Accord. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of them spoke Spanish. Well, one day, Eric had become my, my son. He called me Papa. Um, he came to shine my shoes. The delegation was there. He was of college. He, he was finished high school. He wanted to go to college. And um, they said, we will pay for it. Wow. 
the University of Iowa delegation paid Eric's education to become a, a psychologist. But as I remember from the book, he did not end up a psychologist. He owns a restaurant with his wife, who is a wonderful cook. <laughs> well, that's great. I just want to add, um, Eric got married. I had lunch with them, uh, dinner with them about um, a year ago. They have three children. And Eric said to me, Hermano, you know the university my son, who is getting older, will be able to go to? He's already thinking about his son yeah. and, and yeah. his little daughter, his other son, getting the education. Well, Bob, that is a great story. And folks, the, uh, the book uh, Miracles in El Salvador by Reverend Bob Cook is full of great stories. And I really encourage people to, uh, to check it out. Uh, Bob, thank you for your work. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for taking the time to be on our program. And thanks for all you do. It's a precious time. Thank you. Hey, so folks, uh, when I come back from a short break, uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry about a disturbing situation in Cancer Alley. I mean, the fact that Cancer Alley exists is disturbing, but uh, what the uh, governor of Louisiana is doing to try to stop the uh, stop justice from being brought to that conflict is really appalling. Back in a minute with more conversation on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay, negotiated fee basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Family Forum. Hey, thanks to our partners and sponsors, including Catholic Peace Ministry. Catholic Peace Ministry is an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and focuses on nuclear disarmament, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the need for diplomacy in Ukraine, and ending the permanent war economy. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Thanks also to Western Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Dr. Joel Westerman and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. Well, I'm delighted to have uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry with me for this next segment of the conversation. Um, Dr. Derry is an infectious disease physician working in New Orleans, also the owner of a community-based radio station, WHIV, on which this program does air, and um, a, a, a very astute commentator on all things... Um, political and environmental happening in Louisiana. And what caught my attention recently was the, um, the I mean, Cancer Alley is just by, by definition, is a, it's terrible what we've allowed to happen there. But now apparently it's getting worse. And before we talk about the worst part, Dr. Derry, maybe update people a little bit on what Cancer Alley is and why we should be concerned about it, wherever we live. Absolutely. And thank you for having me on. So Cancer Alley is a... Um, is a space, or it's a, it, it kind of spans between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, and it follows the Mississippi River. And these were areas, uh, they used to be plantations, and this, these were areas that were plantations, um, kind of on both sides of the Mississippi River, uh, beautiful, beautiful uh, areas that were really kind of after slavery and kind of through Jim Crow and after Jim Crow, they were populated by uh, communities of color. And uh, initially after slavery, it was black people. And then these were free, they were known as free towns. 
And, uh, and again, between Baton Rouge and, and New Orleans, and this was all along the Mississippi River, you could imagine this was, you know, ideal land mm -hmm. for yeah. people to be able to live and farm and do, the, do their work. Over the course of the last 50 or so years, uh, uh, these uh, areas have then started to be replaced by kind of petrochemical plants and oil refineries. So because the Mississippi River is right there, you can see this is an ideal place sure. where people could, you know, large plants, you know, international plants, not necessarily Louisiana. These are multi, um, uh, these are uh, international uh, entities from all over the world. They come and they set up their plants in uh, this so-called, what's called Cancer Alley, the space between uh, Baton Rouge and New Orleans, about 80 miles or so. And there is a, a fair amount of pollution that occurs, both air pollution and water pollution. And over the course of the last uh, 30 years or so, it started to become known, and, and more so in the last five years, as you started to see a lot of attention, the Guardian uh, has been putting a lot of attention to this human rights campaign. The United Nations have all started to really focus on Cancer Alley. So what is Cancer Alley? What we are seeing is the rates of different cancers are occurring along Cancer Alley. And most recently, one of the most recent studies by the Human Rights, human rights Campaign have shown that there has been significant increases in, um, in miscarriages, Mm -hmm. uh, there are also uh, a, a preterm a, a pre labor that is the curse of these babies are born prematurely mm -hmm. and also their uh, birth weights are significantly reduced. So you can see just living in this area uh, pollutes the, and, and adversely affects human body in this case, either through cancers or in pregnancy through increases in miscarriage or uh, giving birth to either low uh, birth weight babies or, or again, having uh, miscarriages. So it's really quite a, and it's very clear there has been a number of scientific studies that have shown that, you know, as a result of these 50 now so-called these plants and refineries all along this area is really poisoning uh, the individuals that live there. And more so than ever, we are seeing Louisiana, which has always been a petrochemical state, is just over and over again, differentially just preferring corporations and protecting corporations rather than protecting the people. That's the core of what's happening here. Question for you. The, uh, the, the, you said the, the Guardian has um, paid some attention to this um, English paper, um, the uh, UN. Has there been much focus on the problems here in the U.S. among the U.S. media? Well, <laughs> thank you for that question. Um, no, I think that the U.S. corporate media is, you know, it, the, the media itself is corporate run and they are likely going to protect other corporate entities. So just like a lot of the things that we see in U.S. media and for somebody like yourself and myself who are involved in independent radio, we recognize that we cannot rely on U.S. corporate media to uh, to shed light on these sorts of things. Right. Uh, and so unfortunately, we require, you know, entities like the U.K. Guardian uh, mm -hmm. newspaper or like the United Nations to be able to shed light on this. Or The Intercept, which is the U.S. Paper, or but the very independent, yes. very independent. So um, the, now the EPA is involved or was involved. And uh, what was what was the EPA trying to accomplish by weighing in on the devastation in Cancer Alley? So the EPA was involved because, you know, in a rare show. And in fact, do you remember the one time that Joe Biden actually referred to Cancer Alley as Cancer Alley? And he was, you know, was rebuked by um, uh, by several of the. Uh, uh, representatives, federal representatives in, in Louisiana, and he actually had him walk it back. So he walked back referring to this area as Cancer Alley, as if to deny that it exists, right? But right. anyway, neither here nor there. The EPA, so Biden's EPA, in a rare show of trying to do something, was actually launched a civil rights investigation to see if people's civil rights, and again, we're talking an area that's mostly uh, uh, it, these are communities of color that are disproportionately affected uh, and with cancer and miscarriages and what have you. So they did do a civil rights investigation and they abruptly came to a close for no explanation. There was an investigation that was done. There was no, uh, um, nothing came from that investigation. So we don't know what was actually found and it came to an immediate close. Uh, in somewhere in June of 2023. 
and what fascinating, yeah, that, that, that and then the uh, your governor decided to file a freedom attorney, of information, attorney, attorney general, general, right? At the time, who's now, now your governor. governor? Yeah, and the, after the case was closed, after the EPA, the day after, the day after, he goes after the EPA. That's exactly right. So the day after, our now governor Jeff Landry. If you don't know that name, I assure you, you will soon enough. Dear listeners, you will know uh, Jeff Landry because he will be mentioned alongside uh, Greg Abbott uh, and certainly uh, DeSantis as well. So Jeff Landry, who was then the attorney general, now our governor, the day after the EPA suddenly closed that civil rights uh, investigation, sent out a FOIA investigation, uh, FOIA request. FOIA, I don't know what FOIA stands for. I do. It's uh, uh, Freedom of Information Act. Yes, of course, yeah. Freedom of Information Act. So this is this a Freedom of Information Act is a federal uh, statute that allows um, regular citizens, reporters, or what have you, in an act of transparency, the U.S. government has allowed their communications to be FOIA'd. Right? We refer to it as we made it a verb. We took that acronym and turned it into a verb. We refer to it as being something being FOIA'd. We do that all I the think time. This, yeah. This is the first time I've ever seen a government entity that I'm aware of FOIA another government entity. This is a state entity, the Attorney General, then Attorney General Jeff Landry FOIA'd the EPA for their emails. Now, the reason for that is certainly suspicious that they are trying to see who the EPA interacted with, and clearly it was likely activists and journalists. And the effect that this is going to have as a result of the state of Louisiana foying the EPA is going to have a chilling effect on journalists who are working on the cancer alley, as well as the majority of the activists. And we're talking majority of these activists are black. And right. so you can see that there is a form of intimidation. Certainly that's what it appears on the surface. But it has the potential to not just have a chilling effect on activists fighting the contamination and health risks in Cancer Alley, but nationwide. I mean, I, d I did a little research too, Mark Allen, and apparently it is uh, only about 2% of all the Freedom of Information Act requests are from government. It's almost always from the people or, you know, in, in, in nonprofit or some entity that is trying to protect the people. So the fascinating thing to me here is this is government using FOIA and against the people to defend big corporations, some of them not even American-owned. Hundred percent. And remember, a large part of this, like you'd be like, why, why they're 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 you know they're elected to you know to represent the people. Hold on, laugh with me. Ha ha ha. For one, this is the state of Louisiana. These folks are likely getting paid significant amounts of dollars for them to be able to do this work. These are the people who really run the country are the, the donors and we, the donor class, and especially when you're talking about, uh, you know, these international entities that, you know, we're talking billions of dollars, uh, entities that are worth billions of dollars. I don't know, obviously how much money people are, are making, but if you look to see why politicians are doing things like allowing for entities to come in, set up, set up shop, look the other direction when they are clearly polluting. Um, and then when they see that the people, that their constituents are suffering significantly, they continue to look the other way. And the only thing and conclusion that you can make is exactly as you said, Ed, is that they are favoring corporations rather than favoring people. And in the end, isn't really that what America's all about. <laughs> I mean, to a large degree, this is certainly something that we see on a, on a larger scale. Uh, and so this is really just a microcosm, if you ask me, of what a larger scale of what the American society is morphing into. So take your best guess, Mark Allen, as to why the EPA dropped its investigation so suddenly and so unexpectedly. I mean, I think that what they were finding was very disturbing, and they may have already been starting to talk with the Louisiana state, and they were getting pushed back. That 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 is complete speculation on my part. I would love to hear your 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 best guess. I think that's that's I think you nailed it. But uh, what about another independent agency, an agency that won't be affected by politics? In other words, you know, with, with no connections to the Biden administration, and even worse, the. Uh, the uh, Louisiana governor's administration. What about an independent investigation that would, you know, kind of follow the same procedure that the EPA had set up 
and try to establish uh, you know, a, a clear, clear set of data that uh, indicate what the problem is. But what we're doing is we're operating, you and I are operating from the position that, that people are actually care what the results show. Like we're, you know, you and I are baking the basic assumption. Oh yes, they need to show this. Like I, let me give you an example. When I was, you know, I first got here, you know, HIV is my primary thing. How do you prevent HIV? Uh, very good sex, sexuality education. Tons of research that shows not only here in the U.S. but around the world, especially in Europe, where comprehensive sexuality education is considered a human right, and they are taught age-appropriate sex ed at very young ages. That and this is why rates are so low in different parts of the world. Uh, clear correlation. I started going early on and starting to kind of lobby the politicians about why we need more sex ed and this, that, or whatever. After a while, I realized, oh no, they're, they're, they don't care. They don't care about the science. It, it's beneficial for folks, you know, that are in Baton Rouge who make these decisions. For them, they don't care the sickness or HIV or what have you. It burdens. A population to a large degree. You know, when I first realized that the plan of action for COVID was inaction, you know, again, that makes sense. When you look at the way that they handle guns and, and gun violence, it's just inaction. When you look at climate change, it's inaction. Like you and I are operating from a place that, oh, if we show the data, that they will do yeah. something positive for it. In the end, it's really, it's uh, the only thing that we can do is accumulate power to the same degree that they did. But I think we're way, way, way beyond that because nothing will ever change their minds. And we are locked and said, it's exactly as the movie Don't Look Up that was on Netflix a couple of years uh, ago. Saw it no twice. matter what you can do to show, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. they will not change their minds. But at some point, um, people, I mean, people voted for, for Landry. And they have a chance to vote for somebody else who might actually represent their concerns regarding the environment. Is there any potential for a coalition of cancer alley victims, um, uh, people concerned about the devastation elsewhere in the Louisiana Bayou, um, other other key issues there? Is there a coalition there waiting to be built that might be able to impact political change? Listen, what I'm about to say is going to hurt me very much, but it's the truth, and I think that it needs to be said. Louisiana is 70% white and 30% black. That's what it comes down to. And period. And people vote. And the, the, and the people who are affected here are people of color. Hmm. And I just don't think that the people in Louisiana care. Hmm. It's not their people. It's not them. It's it's not their world. There, there just isn't a concern there. Well, I hope that... so. I hope that there is some entity, some some nonprofit, some legal defense fund that's willing to come forward and try to pick up the slack dropped by the EPA that won't be pressured by Governor Landry to to um to be to remain silent. We'll we'll uh, see. That'd be great. I hope so, but you could see the tactics that they are using, and this is just the beginning. I mean, we have feared. Jeff Landry, both as an attorney general and now as the uh, as the governor, because of the tactics that he will use to bully uh, and to intimidate. Mm. Uh, and if we look at somebody like the former President Trump and the tactics that he used and the way that he was able to step out of the norms and just do things way out of the box to get his way, I strongly anticipate that that uh, Mr. Landry, Governor Landry, will do the same, and yeah. he will stop at nothing to make sure that they can that the plants and the uh, refineries can continue to do the work that they do, so that they can continue to make the money, so in the, in the end they can continue to get their campaign yeah. contributions. Well, Mark, yeah. I know I'm being cynical, but that's yeah. the truth. Well, truth hurts, and if we if it hurts, we still need to hear it. Mark Allen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Folks, we've been talking with Dr. Mark Allen Derry about the uh, situation in Cancer Alley. Got to take a short break. Um, this is Ed Fallon. We'll be back in a minute. We're going to be giving you a climate update when we return on the Fallon Forum. Years ago, Chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood 
encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1980 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks again to all of our partners and sponsors, including Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Klipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, yeah, I want to I want to talk a lot about climate, environmental stuff here, um, including uh, the cutting of a 175-year-old bur oak tree. I will save that story for later because I want to start off by talking about about taxing the rich. Now, you know, we've you've probably heard people like me forever has been talking about the importance of an equitable tax system, about the importance of uh, reestablishing a tax system that, that puts the, uh, a decent, you know, a fair burden on the wealthy. Well, right now, the uh, clamor to tax the rich is coming from the rich, which, um, well, honestly kind of surprised me. But apparently 250 billionaires and millionaires, but millionaires are just billionaire wannabes, right? They're now demanding, demanding that the political elite, meaning themselves, um, <laughs> introduce wealth taxes to help pay for better public services around the world. Uh, quote from that, the, they had an open letter to world leaders. This was delivered at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Quote, our request is simple. We ask you to tax us, the very richest in society. This will not fundamentally alter our standard of living, nor deprive our children, nor harm our nation's economic growth, but it will turn extreme and unproductive private wealth into an investment for our common democratic future. Well, yippee. Um, <laughs> you know, I, it isn't often that I say, yay, rich people. But, yeah, okay, that's great. And, you know, and, and that, was, that was 250 people. Beyond that, there were 2,300 of the richest 5% of the world were polled. I'm not sure who the poll was by. But it was found that 58% of those polled out of this 2,300 people, 58% supported a 2% wealth tax on those who earn more than $10 million a year. And uh, another 54% thought that extreme wealth was a threat to, to democracy. So by that, and a majority of millionaires and billionaires understand that their accumulation of excessive wealth is a problem. This is encouraging. Now, I'm sure there are, there are wealthy people out there. Um, you know, David Koch or Charles Koch, whichever one's still alive. That one comes to mind. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was not a signatory on that letter. Uh, there are some. Kelsey Warren, another really, really rich guy, the guy behind the Dakota Access Pipeline. I'm pretty sure 
He didn't sign that letter. But um, it's encouraging to see that the ultra-rich are, um, are making this proposal. But of course, the, and, and they're, they're, their eyes are open on this as well. There'll probably be no, no um, political will in Congress, especially on the Republican side, to do what they're asking. You know, you know, usually when a rich person comes to a politician and says, hey, I'd like you to do this, they take it seriously. But I, I have a hard time seeing Congress take these rich people seriously on this particular proposal. But anyway, it's good. It's, it's good. It's good, strong language. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's leverage to move forward on something that a lot of us have been talking about forever. But, you know, get this. If, if Congress does nothing... Uh, in terms of responding to this proposed, this, this demanded tax on wealth, the rich could do it themselves. I mean, there's no reason these 250 people or the 58% of the 2,300 surveyed, no reason they couldn't come forward and say, look, we're just going to write an extra big check to the government this year. Or even we're going to be more targeted about it and, and give tens of millions to, you know, to programs and initiatives we believe in. No reason they couldn't do that. We'll see if they do. All right, on to uh, greener and wetter things, um, specifically Greenland. I talk about Greenland once in a while in this program, and every time it's, um, it's worse. Although in this, this particular conversation, there's an interesting caveat that I want to get into about how capitalism is intervening. So, uh, <laughs> so the Greenland ice cap is losing an average of 30 million tons of ice an hour. Every hour, 30 million tons of ice. And that's um, 20% more than was previously thought to be lost. Again, I'm not surprised. My one complaint about climate scientists, they've been right on everything that's going to happen, except they've been wrong on the timeline. Everything is happening faster. And so right now, this is impacting what we like to call the Gulf Stream, but what more scientifically astute people call the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC. But I'm going to keep calling it the Gulf Stream because I'm, low, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, old school and, and, not, and I, I'm not scientifically oriented. Anyway, it's already slowing down because when you add water, when you add fresh water to the mix, it dilutes the, 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 the salt in the ocean and it slows things down. And it is going to collapse. There is no doubt about it. It is going to collapse. And when that happens... Consequences for humanity are, 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 are severe, to put it mildly. And some of those include the forecast for catastrophic monsoons in the, in the Pacific nations, um, East Pacific nations, um, flooding as well. Uh, it also forecasts um, increased drought and heat in North America. And, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm very well connected to my, my ancestry in Ireland. I've talked about that a lot on this program. And I think about what Ireland, what's the forecast for Ireland when the uh, Gulf Stream stops running, when it collapses? Well, uh, you know, Ireland is the same latitude as Hudson Bay, <laughs> okay, where there are polar bears, you know. There are no polar bears in Ireland. There are palm trees, in fact. And a nasty winter day is usually in the 30s, maybe a little bit of snow. But when, and, and right now, you know, again, Ireland is about 40 degrees warmer in January than Hudson Bay, Labrador, those places. But when this collapses, you know, I mean, Ireland is warmer because of the Gulf Stream. When there's no Gulf Stream, what happens? Well, it's not hard to project that the temperatures will be 40 degrees colder in January than they are currently. We'll see. Again, it's not, it won't be speculative for long. It'll be it's going to play out. We're going to know. So, um, again, since 1985, um, we've seen about a trillion tons of ice lost in Greenland. And uh, a recent study, again, suggested that Gulf Stream collapse could happen as soon as next year. Again, my big complaint about climate scientists, they've been right on everything except timeline. So now if they're saying it's going to happen in 2025, okay, it might even happen this year. But it is, it is, it is, it is happening. The slowdown is significant. The collapse is inevitable. And again, the impacts about, uh, uh, from that are huge. So, um, again, not only, uh, I mean, you're looking at an, uh, almost a, 
you know, when, when at some point there's going to be a, a sea level rise of three to six feet. Yeah, that's 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 putting a lot of coastal communities underwater. But again, as I mentioned, fear not capitalism. I, I won't say it's coming to the rescue, but it's finding an opportunity in this. So, yeah, capitalism, I, you know, making lemonade out of lemons, or in this case, luxury ice cubes out of melting Greenland glaciers. So here's what's happening. There's a guy named um, Malik Rasmussen. I don't know what nationality he is. Maybe he is Greenlandish. But he is, um, he founded a company called Arctic Ice, and uh, he ships that ice from Greenland to the United Arab Emirates to sell to exclusive bars. So, you know, so you can have a cocktail on the top of a Dubai skyscraper, that, and that probably seems decadent enough. But add to that a uh, ice cube from a glacier, from a fjord in Greenland. And um, yeah, that's the, I guess that's the ultimate international thrill, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know how to... I don't know how to spell decadence and obscene, over-the-top, you know, wealth any more profoundly than that. That's just, it just boggles my mind that, again, uh, I, I guess I shouldn't fault this guy for capitalizing on it, but that, that there's a market for this sort of thing, that there, that there are people willing to buy ice cubes from uh, a glacier that's melting in Greenland, again, when all these glaciers melt. It's it's catastrophic for the world, but no, what, what, you know, as long as the party's still going, folks, we're going to have these Greenland ice cubes in our daiquiris. All right, so <laughs> the um, all right, I want to talk about court challenges relevant to climate change as well. Um, you know, we've seen record uh, domestic oil and gas production in the U.S. and of course, lots of promises made by fossil fuel companies that are not kept. Uh, and despite that, um, we are seeing some very significant victories in the, uh, in the, on the legal front. Uh, there was a groundbreaking, groundbreaking ruling in Montana this past year uh, that, um, if it stands, depending how the appeal goes, if it stands, it would force Montana to change a lot of its environmental policies to address climate concerns. And again, most of these lawsuits, not all, most of them are being brought by young people. So, um, yeah, last year there were, uh, and, and, it's, and, and they're winning too, last year there were um, about two dozen cases that uh, involved wins, uh, you know, in states and, and cities around the world, around the, around the state, around the U.S., against fossil fuel companies for allegedly deceiving the public about the dangers of global warming. Um, and up this coming, this coming year in Hawaii, uh, in June, there's a... Uh, a youth-led lawsuit on climate that a judge is prepared to hear. Uh, it's, uh, it's, this one focuses on the state's transportation infrastructure, indicating that the uh, state authority failed to cooperate with, uh, with other state regulators and federal regulators to slash uh, carbon dioxide pollution. So um, and just last month in December, the, uh, our Children's Trust, which has been behind a significant number of lawsuits, including uh, Juliana versus the federal government. And um, they're, bringing, they're, they're bringing a bunch of other lawsuits. And this, um, this one, there's one based on in California. There's also lawsuits pending in Florida, Utah, Virginia. And you know, it's not just, uh, it's not just Republicans who oppose these kind of legal lawsuits. It's certainly, certainly the four fossil fuel companies do. But earlier this month, um, the Biden administration filed a motion to dismiss uh, at least one of these youth-led lawsuits against the federal government. Okay, <laughs> so, uh, you know, and again, again, it's not just young people. I, I, I mentioned before the, uh, the five valve turners. We've had one of them on this program, in fact. The valve turners were um, activists, you know, in, in, middle age, in their middle of life, some of them even a little bit older, who uh, in a coordinated way um, turned off the... Uh, the, uh, shut down the oil flowing through the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, it was significant, and one of them, uh, well, one of them had a had a victorious day in court, using the uh, justification defense that because climate is an emergency, because it is causing you know, you know, incredible harm, 
you know, it, it has to be it has to be has to be um, has to be stopped, and it, we're 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 justified in bringing this to the court. Now, I have I of course have my own day in court on that. Uh, Kathy and I and three others. Um, well, we uh, we decided a little drama was in order. We went to a Trump fundraiser here in Des, in Des Moines a few years back, and I was surprised at how hard we had to work to get arrested. I mean, they really. The law enforcement was very kind to us. <laughs> and, and again, it helps to be white and middle class in Iowa, you know. Uh, they treat you better than if you're a Native American in Standing Rock or an African American in the central city of, um, of a larger larger region. But um, we got, you know, treated pretty well, and we were begged, we were begged to stop our protest. But in the end, they arrested us, and we, we, wanted, we, we wanted to see what happened when we took this case to court, and we, we made that justification argument. We were very well prepared. We thought we had a good case. Um, we didn't succeed, but at least we added to statutory you know, law the, that there was a case that brought up justification, and here's how it went. So in the future, if and when, and probably when, other such cases are brought before the uh, courts here in Iowa, or maybe even elsewhere, uh, you know, reference to those those conversations and rulings will be will be relevant. Anyway, um, one more thing I want to say: Biden. A good thing about Biden, he uh, he has uh, decided that the world's largest exporter of liquid liquefied natural gas, that would be the U.S., um, must put a we're putting a putting a, a putting a limit on it. Right now, there's um, no more exporting of natural gas. We'll see how that goes, but good for Biden for doing that. In terms of my, what I mentioned earlier, um, yeah, there's a guy up here in northwest Iowa who decided that it was his right to cut down whatever trees he wanted because he needed them to survive. This 41-year-old guy um, named Jason Ferguson, he, he went so he cut down 100 trees, and one of them was a 175-year-old burr oak that was six feet across. Now, who in their right mind wants to cut through a six feet across you know, oak tree? I mean, there's something wrong with this guy. And then he, he's got this attorney who's arguing that he has a right to take those down because he needed the wood for shelter and heat. Oh, come on. That's just, uh, that is just horrible. Anyway, hey, thanks, folks. Again, this is Ed Fallon. When we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns will join me to discuss the recent USDA Ag Census and what that means in terms of food production. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks to our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. These days, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, helpless, even hopeless. Wherever you live in Iowa, psychiatrist Dr. David Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay, negotiated fee basis. Contact Dr. David Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. All right, Kathy, welcome to the program. And we are discussing the USDA Ag Census just released. Drum roll. Mm -hmm. So 
we're in that. <laughs> we are. We are. And it might be the smallest farm in it. The, the Census of Agriculture is done every five years by the USDA, and the last one was completed in 2022, and they just released the results. Uh, you know, we are some of the farmers that are included in that survey. Uh, between 2012 and 2022, the number of producers, in other words, farmers, has remained steady at about 3.4 million. The number of farms themselves has continued to decline from uh, over 2 million, 2.11 million in 2012, and now down to 1.9 million. And so I mean, my impression is farms are both getting bigger and on the other end of the scale, more diverse. Smaller ones are getting more diverse. That's correct. It's the middle farmers who are not as well represented uh, in fact, about a third of all U.S. producers as of the 2022 census have only farmed for 10 years or fewer. So uh, these folks also, a beginning farmer is defined as having 10 years or fewer of experience. Yeah. And I know it wasn't that long ago that the average age of a farmer was like about 60. <laughs> is that dropping? Uh Yes, it is. And I'm sorry, I don't have that number right in front of me. But uh, my guess is it would be dropping. Yeah, uh, because more there are more young people who these are the people with less experience picking up uh, right. and doing a little more small farming and diversified farming. And what about racial and ethnic uh, breakdown? What's that look like? Well, still, 96 percent of farmers who complete and participate in the survey are white. The next largest group is Hispanics and uh, about 112,000 Hispanics were listed on the survey, and uh, the next largest is the American Indian Alaska Native, followed by Black, and uh, so on. So white farmers are still predominant, but I see that, you know, visually in the area that we live in, and we live in Des Moines, we see more people of color farming, mm -hmm. and um, I'm not sure if they are being considered part of the census yet or not. Good question. I mean, our farmer's market features several excellent uh, Asian growers, and some of them have been at it for 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. yeah. The diversification is great, and uh, unfortunately, though, if you look at, and this isn't from the USDA, I, uh, DA, I found it on a different source, but crops by income in the U.S., the first crop by mm. income, the, the biggest category is cattle and calves. Biggest uh, category in terms of money? That's right, Okay. in, in terms of uh, how much they Revenue. bring in. That's 168 yeah percent of the total revenue of farming. The next is corn. Of course. <laughs> and that's at 16.4 percent. Then soybeans, then uh, dairy products, then boiler chickens, and in Iowa we grow a lot of chickens. And down on the list uh, farther is eggs, that kind of thing. So unfortunately the, uh, the corn average of 90 million acres uh, being farmed per year, 45 uh, percent of that is slated for ethanol. That isn't just gasoline additive, that's also solvents sure. and alcoholic beverages. So I'm responsible for some of that. <laughs> and 40% uh, is used to feed cattle, hogs, and poultry. So very little of that farmland is used for food. Now one thing you hear about in the news is uh, big corporations or foreign corporations buying up U.S. farmland. Now some states don't allow we have pretty good restrictions on foreign ownership of farmland, but mm -hmm. I think the biggest owner of farmland in the U.S. right now is Bill Gates. Isn't that something? <laughs> it's something, and it's I, disturbing. Not because of any political reasons, just because of one big rich guy owning so much farmland. He owns farmland. I wouldn't say he's a farmer. No, he's not I, a farmer at all. Maybe, maybe he grew up as a farmer. I don't know. I, I really don't know. Some of the good news uh, that I saw in the... USDA census was that a total of 153,000 farms and ranches are now using renewable energy producing systems, and that is up 15% from the 2017 survey. The majority of those farms um, are using uh, solar panels. Hmm. And yeah, what I, again, what I've noticed that's very encouraging is the more and more farms that are doing direct marketing, mm -hmm. and we see that in our area. We hear a lot about it around the country. Is that reflected in the ag census at all? Yes. It says that uh, there were, in 2022, 116,000 and up farms were selling directly to the consumers. Uh, the value of the sales between 2017 and 2022 had increased by 16%. So so that's good. And those are some of the, the new farmers, I think, that we talked about earlier mm -hmm. on smaller plots of land. And they've got food to actually sell to people. Right. They're not uh, necessarily selling to others to feed their, their cars and their cows. Yeah. 
I, I wouldn't be surprised to see the big corporations, some of them foreign, beginning to push back against the growing market share that small market to farm, market, uh, farm to market uh, operations have. So what's the final word on this, Kathy? The final word is that uh, there's a lot of promising trends. What you said might be true, that people are just going to, the big guys are going to beat down the little guys, but uh, there's still too much land, fertilizer, water, all that stuff dedicated to crops that aren't feeding people. Yeah. Hey, thanks, uh, Kathy, and thanks to our guests today, Bob Cook and Mark Allen Derry, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and David Drake Family Psychiatry. And thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks again to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.